0: Hi everyone thanks for joining us to discuss a very important and often heated issue free speech the conversation has only become more pressing these days as we debate bill c10 in the house of commons what can and can't be said during the pandemic restrictions on the online world political and academic censorship and how to tackle extremism of all sorts but before we get to our guest i want to tell you a story i never forget this incident that happened to me over 15 years ago I attended a public event at the University of Toronto, where I was a student at the time, and it was on the issue of hate speech. The topic was, is hate speech free speech? The speaker, a tenured professor at the school, was writing a book on the issue. And he ultimately concluded that, yes, hate speech, however much you may hate it, is indeed free speech, generally speaking. Yes, it's good that there are already laws governing things such as a defamation and libel, and you certainly can't uh, threaten to kill a person and get away with it. But everything else, you know, being a jerk, saying really offensive things online, well, you know, it may not be desirable. Don't raise your kids to be that guy, but it's not against the law, and it shouldn't be. So that was the general thrust of the event that I attended, which in advance was advertised in the student papers, online, and on posters around the school. And oh boy, you won't believe what happened at that event. Several dozen people showed up. The professor, who was rather bland and apolitical, gave his presentation. Afterwards, people asked questions. Some agreed. Some disagreed. Unfortunately, there was no free food there, which is one of the main reasons students attend such extracurricular events, and so afterwards, everyone just went home. And that was it. That's my story. Kind of remarkable, right? Because not long after that, similar events on free speech happened at campuses around the country, and they did not go over so well. Fire alarms pulled, protests, violence even... And now universities know better, and such events, well, they just don't really happen anymore. Such conversations don't happen anymore, not just on campus, but anywhere. Was my little polite and respectful free speech event the end of an era? What is happening on campuses today? In broader society, online, in our legislatures? Do we have free speech in Canada anymore? Does the controversial Bill C-10 infringe upon free speech? Or are such concerns overblown? And yes, government must do more to police our words and our online conduct. One of the best guests in Canada to tackle this issue is Bruce Party, a professor of law at Queen's University and a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. He joins us now. Hey, Bruce, how you doing?
1: I'm very well, Anthony. Thanks for having
0: me. Yeah, great to have you. Thanks so much uh, for joining us. Let's jump right into it. You you wrote a recent column in the National Post on Bill C-10, that legislation that, well, it was making its way through the House of Commons, and now it kind of seems like a fait accompli. It's going to be enacted. And you say pretty forward in that column, Bill C-10 is an autocratic piece of legislation. Describe what the bill is to us and well, why we are facing something as troubling as, as autocratic legislation in what should be Free Canada.
1: Right. So Bill C-10, when you first read the draft, it doesn't sound autocratic. It doesn't sound like it's a real threat because all it claims to do is to update the Broadcasting Act so as to give the CRTC the jurisdiction to regulate uh, online companies as well as the regular television and radio stations to bring the Broadcasting Act into the 21st century. So it sounds
0: pretty boring. But I mean, already for exactly, regular listeners, they're, they're glazing over and they're like, yeah, CRTC stuff, you know, I don't care. Yeah. What does this have to do with me?
1: Exactly. Exactly. And, 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 and when, the fir- when the bill first came out, people thought exactly what you just said, like, yeah, whatever but the but the first iteration of the bill had an exception in it and the exception was that that it would not apply to the online content of individual users of social media platforms that means that the CRTC would have no jurisdiction to oversee what you put in your video on YouTube while in committee that exception was removed and so Although it is still the case that the CRTC will not regulate you directly if you both videos or pictures or the like, but it will have the jurisdiction to police that content and to do so by policing and regulating the online platforms themselves. And so in other words, what the CRTC now has the power to do is to make these online platforms regulate their users. And so, for example, if you put together a video and you post it on YouTube, it might be that nobody watches it because YouTube has put it at the bottom of the list. They've buried it Mm. at the behest of CRTC policies. And that means that your online speech is no longer free, whether or not you are putting stuff up there or whether or not you're trying to watch it or listen to it or read it. You just can't tell now whether you're getting the real goods, because it's CRTC will now be interfering in what you see.
0: And you know, what's really interesting, one thing I learned, uh, Lauren Gunter writing about in a column recently in the Post Media paper, saying the Liberals have actually budgeted nearly $4 million uh, this year just for the CRTC to hire consultants and start staff working on a proposal for, for how much more money and staff they're going to need to sort of monitor all of these internet activities. And it's like, oh, they, they actually are, this is not just about tweaking one word here or there for, you know, whatever technical reason, but it, it looks like they are planning to start doing stuff.
1: Oh yes now they're taking this very seriously and what i mean by that is that we are now in the era where it actually is not accepted as a given that speech shall be free that you what you say is your business and what you want to listen to is your business that's not true now mind you in this country we've been in a situation for a long time that that hasn't been the case on on tv and radio because the crtc for a long time has has regulated Canadian content and, and so on. So this has a long pedigree, but it is it is really becoming extreme now. If, if you were to put that proposition to somebody in the government, I think, or at the CRTC, do you believe that speech, the default position for speech is that speech is free and government should not be interfering? I don't think that idea would be accepted. And everything else follows from that.
0: Now, one of the things that's very odd is the justifications that have come about for both Bill C-10 and kind of other ways that Heritage Minister Stephen Guilbault and, and other figures in the Liberal government talk about all this. Because in in one breath, they talk about, look, this is really just about Canadian content and, and we need a mechanism to sort of ensure that that you know Netflix and Amazon Prime and so forth are are sort of living up to their obligations and maybe new ways to get some tax dollars for them, for Can, uh, for CanCon and so forth and all that. And you go, oh, okay, I don't know if this is the mechanism, For it fine, and then in other breaths, we've seen Stephen Guabo go before uh, committee hearings and talk about the fact that oh, one should not, for instance, be allowed to like criticize public servants because it makes their jobs difficult, or like really bizarre comments like that, where you're like, What on earth? is going on here. We have Michael Wernick, who was the former uh, chief clerk of the Privy Council. So, of course, the top uh, top public servant in all of the country on a federal level uh, saying, look, this online environment's crazy. You know, we got to crack down on stuff that's going on. I mean, they talk about the CanCon in one breath. And then, like I said, they're they're really talking about, I don't know, you're not even allowed to say you don't agree with the public service.
1: Right. Yes. And the liberals, in addition to to C-10, the liberals have and promising to bring forth other legislation that will, will directly regulate so-called hate speech and misinformation online. And you know you're in trouble when the, when governments propose to do that because, of course, the definition of hate speech, the definition of misinformation is going to be in their hands. That's just full-blown censorship. Uh, and, and that's the route that we're on. I don't know if it'll happen in this session because this session is running out of days. But if, if the Liberals are to be re-elected, Uh, This is one of the things that they have said that they will do. And that goes far beyond what Bill uh, C-10 threatens to do. This will be, uh, uh, at least they've suggested, it will be more of a direct government control over what you can and cannot say online.
0: One of the things that I I find very interesting about the misinformation conversation is is the kind of ever-changing definitions that are going on and the lack of specificity of, okay, what exactly... Are we talking about here? I, I can give one really clear-cut example of misinformation that is very problematic. Uh, so, former Colonel Russell Williams—he has uh, been convicted of murder. Of course, he was a former colonel in the Canadian Armed Forces, and he is incarcerated uh, right now. A few years ago, uh, there were Eastern European and I guess Russian allied media who were claiming that the Canadian troops who were stationed. Uh, over in that area, over in Eastern Europe for the sort of NATO missions we do to sort of check Russian aggression and so forth, there was media claiming that he was the commanding officer on the ground. So of course, the goal of that uh, was to let the, uh, for the people to not support the presence of Canadian forces in their communities and say, look, they got a murderer. They got this crazy guy running things over there. You do not trust Canadians. You go, that's flat out misinformation. And, And Bruce, I think it hits a really technical definition of, there's a whole season of the TV show Homeland where misinformation, plays a role in what happens in national security i go okay fine you know makes sense other times i've been really surprised when we talk about say coronavirus how we talk about the pandemic facebook set out all these rules for things that they are going to ban and restrict you talking about online and that involved basic things like well you can't say it leaked from a lab in wuhan well why can't you oh that's a that's a misinformation thing that's a conspiracy oh well why is it well because it is we all know that and then of course we're now at the point where oh Maybe maybe it seems like it actually maybe likely did leak from a lab. Oh, okay. We'll let you post about that again. I mean, I I think Bruce, those are pretty clear cut examples of, uh, do we really want to talk about like regulating in the house of commons, this very amorphous
1: term? No, no, we don't. We definitely do not for the reasons that you're citing. But part of the difficulty now is that some of us are, are assuming old things, and those things have moved on in the minds of many Hmm. so when when we talk about when they talk about misinformation they and they wouldn't they wouldn't put it this way but i would describe that as what they really mean is information they don't like or information's not that's not consistent with the way they see the world and we've seen during this this pandemic all kinds of misinformation and propaganda being promoted by governments. And if those governments had control over online platforms, then all of the other more accurate information that, that are available from all kinds of interesting places, including people who are are educated and intelligent about medical matters like doctors and other kinds of institutions, Great Barrington Declaration and so on, those voices would be in danger of being silenced and so this is the era where political correctness has 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 it never really left but it has re, it faded away for a while and has reemerged as a real thing and people forget what political correctness actually means uh, some say political correctness originated in the soviet union and the meaning of political correctness is this It is distinct from something that is actually correct something something is called politically correct because it's not actually correct in Mm. other words you must go along with this because if you don't you'll get into trouble even though it's not true that's what politically correct means and so if you have governments that insist upon political correctness then the danger is you're not actually getting the real stuff and and so, in the present era, the last people to trust for the truth is.
0: One of the things that I found very interesting when I've been doing various reports and writing in columns on what's happening during the pandemic, I was one of the first people to to write about comorbidity data here in Canada. And last fall, I guess October, November, I wrote several pieces out. The Alberta government has much more robust uh, reporting and public disclosure of comorbidity. And around the time, and the numbers pretty much held constant, about 75% of people who have died of coronavirus in Alberta had three or more underlying health conditions, three or more. And the percentage of people who had died of COVID who had zero underlying health conditions was something like 2.5% at the time. And those people would have included people, uh, you know, over 80 in their 90s and so forth who had died of the virus. I wrote this out in a a column because I I think Canadians, you know, deserve to know basic, you know, nuanced contextual information, 101 facts about what's happening. And uh, Health Minister Patty Hadju actually rose during question period and, and labeled my writing fake and dangerous news. And it's like, I I really just directly quoted from the Alberta Health Services website. I mean, maybe you don't like some of the way I wrote this sentence or that sentence. Maybe another media outlet would have written it differently. But there's nothing fake about it. It's just government statistics. And there she was, the health minister, you know, denouncing me for all this. And then the prime minister also got in on it a little bit as well later. And it's like, is this the new standard?
1: Yes, that's exactly what I mean. That is a new standard. The new standard is becoming a government that insists that their version of things is correct and that quite literally you should not be allowed to contradict them. And a lot of people understandably can't get that through their heads because it is so alien to what we think is the case and what has been the case for so long in this country. We we are experiencing a cultural revolution in this country. WE ARE IN A MOMENT WHERE YOU CAN SEE THE GROUND SHIFT. NOW, IT'S BEEN IN THE works FOR A LONG TIME. IT, 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 has, a, it HAS A LONG PEDIGREE, AS I SAID EARLIER, BUT, but WE, have, we have REALLY HAVE REACHED A KIND OF TIPPING POINT where, WHERE GOVERNMENTS, federal GOVERNMENT, FOR EXAMPLE, IN THE INSTANCE THAT YOU'RE SPEAKING ABOUT, ARE OPENLY SAYING, NO, NO, YOU SHOULD NOT BE ALLOWED TO SAY THAT, EVEN THOUGH IT'S BASED UPON OUR STATS. It's not the message we prefer, it's not the truth as we see it, and therefore it is misinformation. That 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 would be unbelievable at a different time. Today, it's almost run-of-the-mill.
0: You're using the phrase cultural revolution. I mean, let, let me ask, are, are you using that phrase lightly, or do you mean maybe this portends even more dramatic things, such as we saw in previous occurrences called the cultural revolution in China some five, six decades ago?
1: yes who knows where it will lead i mean i'm 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 not drawing a direct parallel but there are lots of historical examples of things going badly at moments like this and i don't think that we can be assured that 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 things won't go similarly or or some other bad place in this country if you look at all kinds of things that we take for granted as self-evidently true the validity of individualism the idea of of uh sovereignty over your own decisions Mel- I mean, health decisions uh decisions about what to say what to believe the idea of merit the idea of uh, equal application of the law equal treatment uh, so if you if you have a job posting say for the government the idea that everybody could be allowed to apply for that job regardless of who they are what race they are what sex they are what religion they are that idea is out. Governments are now posting jobs for people of particular groups, and other groups are not eligible. This is part of the revolution, and it is happening before our eyes. Uh,
0: professor, let's talk about campus, something that you have a lot of experience on, because I, I gave that anecdote about uh, this this public event that was, I, I guess, a controversial issue, but it was it was such a a polite experience and I, I you know i guess people maybe had some problems with a few of the things being said but you know they just raised their hands they, they disagreed and i don't remember any drama going on and i i really do feel like that was the last time something like that happened am i being dramatic or am i saying that i i did witness you know i, I was sort of on, on the last helicopter out of vietnam or you know that was like something that was like an event that sort of uh experience that i had over 15 years ago
1: yeah yeah it's it, 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 It might have been the last one, Anthony, I don't know when the last one was, but it certainly is different than what might occur today. So, for example, um, in 2018, I think it was, I invited Jordan Peterson to give a talk at Queen's. And in response to the announcement of the event, a large number of my faculty colleagues put together an open letter to the principal saying that essentially that this should not be allowed. Because of Jordan Peterson's odious and and ill advised views, right. and and that, that does an extraordinary thing because all he was planning to do and all I was planning to do was to have him on the stage to have him state things as he as he saw them, um, and, and to allow and for so,
0: critical questioning, I imagine from the audience if the audience wants oh, to object indeed. to what, what someone all, is saying, yeah. feel free to you know challenge the person or, or disagree with them and so forth.
1: We, we, had a, we had a long question and answer period uh, in the event, and it was a, a long lineup of, of people at the microphone asking really good, uh, probing questions. And, and the event itself was terrific. Uh, but but it was an extraordinary lead, lead up to the event mm-hmm. because, at these academic institutions, which, by the way, for the most part, still insist that they are committed to academic freedom. I mean, you'll, you'll, you'll very be very hard pressed to find an institution that would say openly that oh no we don't believe in academic freedom but there's usually a but attached to it academic mm-hmm. freedom yes but but you know you shouldn't you shouldn't uh, have, have hate speech you shouldn't have misinformation you, you you're not allowed to harass people you're not allowed to cause them harm you're not allowed to deny their existence and so on so in other words freedom academic freedom yes
0: well, well, at face value, I mean, I would agree with all of those assertions. But I guess to go back to what you were saying earlier, it's it's that a lot of times those those accusations, those phrases, are used to kind of pick and choose.
1: Well, that's exactly right. That's that's precisely the point. The, the, the picking and choosing is going on. So, for example, let's take the issue of transgenderism and identity, which is one of the most the prickliest questions today. Right. So, if you were a professor and you stood up in class, you know, in a class in which the topic is pertinent, and that you had a discussion about identity and transgenderism and transition and so on, Mm. would you be safe in suggesting that a person who was born a man is always a man?
0: Safe from what, though? Because one would face consequences to maybe, you know, wading into a controversial issue.
1: Uh, right and this is a phrase that is often used now you're 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 free to speak but you're not free from the consequences of what you say and and in some respects that's correct it's always been the case right people are allowed to react to what you said in the way they see fit and this this gets to the core of our liberal society right the idea of freedom is reciprocal everybody has it so if you are a man and you want to call yourself a woman then you are free to do so because that's the nature of freedom right but everybody else is free too and so they should be free to 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 hear your claim and then to respond to it as they see fit because they're free like you are so if you say you're a woman and they say no you're not well now you're both engaging in your free exchange of ideas and the idea that the first person's selection of their identity is the one that governs everybody is it's contrary to that idea. So if if you are not safe in a classroom saying, no, I don't agree. I think if you're born a man, then you're always a man. You if, if the idea of liberal free speech and the idea of academic freedom is actually being followed, then that's a perfectly fine statement.
0: What about persons in the classroom who say, look, a theoretical discussion is one thing, but I do not want to be subjected to sort of personal... Uh, you know, personal abuse, personal criticism, things that are targeting me. You know, specifically in this moment.
1: Well, but it's not a matter of targeting somebody in the classroom specifically. If you're having a, an academic conversation about these issues, then it's not a matter of pulling somebody up from the classroom and saying, "Look, you, 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 you know, you're you're a not a woman, you're a man, or vice versa, or whatever the case may be." It's not about singling somebody out. It's a, talking about the 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 conceptual question and that kind of conversation is also uh, apparently now in many places beyond the pale
0: professor i, I want to get your thoughts on something that happened at queen's university where you were stationed uh, several years ago a group of students put together something called uh, the free speech charter they were basing it on something that happened uh, originally i believe at the university of chicago which has a a great pedigree of uh, really being a bastion of free-thinking, liberal exchange of ideas. They had the great books program by uh, their their former president many decades ago, and it was really considered a, a great sort of liberal arts facility and so on. Queen sort of taking that, this enshrining the free speech charter, uh, that was kind of a big moment, and a lot of people, well, some people applauded those students, other people did not support all of that, and then there was the idea, would it catch wildfire? Would you see this happening at other universities, and would administrations enshrine it? And maybe one or two did, but by and large, that that kind of fizzled away. Why is that? Was it too controversial? Was there just not an appetite for it?
1: Well, the universities today, especially in Canada, but not just in Canada, are essentially captured by a particular constellation of interests, Uh, faculty, students, administration. And they are not all of one mind to a person. But as constituencies, they pretty much all agree about many of these issues and those interests, because they are powerful on campus, will not allow the kind of open dialogue that you're speaking of. The Chicago principles are good. And in fact, they were mentioned in a policy document developed by the Ford government that purported to require Ontario universities to adopt their own free speech policies that, that were consistent with right. those Chicago principles so as to protect and promote free speech and academic freedom. And that policy was very well intended. And the idea is good. but. Its actual impact has been not great. It, it, it has been a sort of a feeble document to try to accomplish what needs to be done, for sure. But it's just in the wrong form and, and doesn't work very well. Uh, and so, so we're, we're we're still stuck with the with the status quo for now.
0: And the status quo, you would say, is not amenable right now to freedom of discussion, whatever. Matter. Well,
1: let's not let's not go quite so far because because in many respects, uh, discussion is uh, able to be conducted on campus. I mean, it's not so when, when I teach my classes, nobody nobody has said to me, "Look, party, don't talk about this or that, or you're getting into trouble." Nobody has said that, and nobody was suggested. Um, well, hold on, you're so tenured, right? I'm tenured, yes, but even even some tenured people at at some universities across the country have gotten into trouble for things that they've said. Sometimes it's been stuff they've said on social media, sometimes not, sometimes in papers, sometimes not. And so tenure is a great thing. It's a good protection for people who want to color outside the lines. But it's not a a 100% guarantee. But but even so, um, people, for the most part, are able to have academic discussions in their classrooms and write what they want without interference. However, at the same time, there is, I think it's fair to say, resistance at universities from coast to coast to the idea that there should be ideological diversity and ideological dissent that is allowed and promoted and embraced on campus. And by ideological diversity, I mean a genuine mixture of political perspectives from left to right. Because those perspectives that come from the right, I, I'm uh, primarily, are often regarded on campus as not simply diverse, but wrong, like they're just wrong, and they should not be promoted. And so if you had universities adopting the idea that they were going to embrace and promote viewpoint diversity or ideological diversity, what that might require them to do is to actually go out of their way to hire more people who weren't on the left, because the left dominates the universities. Right. And that's something that they just probably wouldn't be able to swallow.
0: Uh, one other anecdote from my university years, when I was in second year university, I studied philosophy. I took a, a course, a second year course on Karl Marx, on Marxism. And just because, you know, this is a guy, big figure, lots of people talk about him, and it seems like he had a lot of influence over 19th century, 20th century thought. So it kind of makes sense to learn a bit about Karl Marx, even though I did not think I was a Marxist uh, while enrolling in that course. But, you know, you want to learn. That's what you're in university for. So I'm taking this class and And uh, as I read through the various books, I mean, I knew the basic ideas, but we were actually studying the books in depth. It became clear to me that, that the students who asked some pushback questions were getting a bit of a rough ride from the professor. And then... I guess it was on me for not knowing this, but I do a bit of googling around, and I found out that the professor is also the person who who ran as the local Marxist-Leninist candidate, you know, perennially every single election and so forth. I thought, oh man, you know, this guy's a true believer, and this is some sort of, you know, ideological activism thing as well, and I don't know how he can separate himself from this course. So, you know, I, I took the full course and wanted to learn. I had some issues at the very end with the exam, the last paper I wrote, and so forth, and I can't help but feel it was because the papers were not saying, you know, okay, I've studied Karl Marx, two thumbs up, uh, where do I sign up? I'm ready to put in the button and start handing out the literature and so forth. And I look back at that and that was, I don't know if this professor had ever had any problems with the, you know, being censured and so forth by uh, other, you know, administrative people for the way he was conducting himself. But I just kind of thought, wow, I mean, if there was something like this going on on the other side of the spectrum, I, I mean, Bruce, would that person have not been removed by now and run out of town?
1: Hard to say, depends upon what university he was at and what the right. students' reactions were. See, sure. see, it's also a generational thing. Right? Because uh, our 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 students today have been through, you know, thirteen years of school. And and from what I can tell, all of this revolutionary woke stuff is very much more um, entrenched in the public school curriculum than it is even at the universities. And so they're used to all of this and they think it's they think it's the truth. Now, of course, not to a person. I mean, there are lots of students who don't, lots of them. And and you know good minds and and um, and so on. But what for the most part this is maybe even what they have come to expect. And so it is it is not it is not a matter of of universities having an iron fist and saying to you know giving marching order to their faculty. That's not what happens. It's not what happens at all. Instead, what tends to happen over time is that um, you you get universities um reproducing themselves in Mm. the sense that they 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 contain a particular political constituency and that constituency exercises control over who it is is appropriate to hire next time and they hire more of their own so over time you get a concentration of a particular kind of thought at universities and so at these places it is quite safe for the institution to endorse academic freedom because academic freedom means that you're free to say what you think and what most people there think right. is consistent with the with the with the uh, prevailing view. And every once in a while, you get somebody who sticks out and who says something that's not politically correct. And then there's a, a, right. a problem of what we what we going to do about this. And very often, the answer is a good one, which is no, no, no. We have academic freedom. This person is allowed to speak like everybody else. And that's been my experience at my school, and that's good. Um, but it is not. The experience of everybody at every school and that's why there's a difference between academic freedom on the one hand which means people who are on the inside can say what they think versus uh, a, a commitment to viewpoint diversity which, which would require the university to go outside itself and to make sure that the range of views reflected inside is a is a, is a broad one
0: It really hits home for me when you talk about, you know, your students at university, they've had, you know, 10, 12, 13 years of public schooling education. I'd heard a lot of people complain about the school system for a few years now. And I was wondering, you know, what did they really mean? What are the specific complaints? I have some small children now in the Ontario school system. I was a little surprised. One assignment uh, that uh, one of my children in a much younger grade had received was, okay, here's who Greta Thunberg is. Here's what she stands for. Let's talk about Greta at great length for a while. And your assignment is to make a protest placard as if you were going to a protest in allegiance with greta thunberg and i was nice. like whoa whoa whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold, hold on a second you do not say to a child and you know what happy with the education teacher lovely person great teacher but i'm like you can say who greta is what she's rallying for and so forth and i think even at the younger grades i don't think there's any reason to do that but let's just say you can do that but then you say your assignment is you must do a protest placard, which you are echoing her views. I mean, come on, I don't, I don't care what the issue is, left wing, right, wing, whatever it is. That should not be something that is done. Well, it shouldn't be done in a, 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 in a primary school, secondary school, university setting where you assign them. This is your political view. Go and you know attend a protest with this sign, but in a younger grades i mean heavens and, yeah, and part but, of my problem is the fact that that it, the person is such a good teacher and, and a lovely teacher and you know we're otherwise very happy with it and so forth it's not even like I, I don't think people in the system even think like this is not sometimes you have a teacher who knows they're radical and knows they're pushing agenda and is doing it very aggressively that is not this situation
1: oh and i think it's probably not the situation with most teachers i i, I agree uh, but but m- many teachers in the public schools are teaching critical theory, even if they don't realize it. And critical theory is not critical thinking, right? The two things are very, very, very different.
0: What is critical, critical
1: theory? Critical theory is an academic theory, and it's really not even a theory. It's more like an agenda or a or a or a conviction. Um, it is a it has a long pedigree. And it's based originally upon uh, marxist theory although they rejected the 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 class conflict uh, inherent in marxism and instead substituted over a long period of time identity politics essentially and so the theory is that western civilization consists of power struggles between groups and uh, and the white group is is ascendant and oppressive and everybody else is a victim and their the objective is to to basically to bring Western civilization to its knees by either eliminating or totally reforming its institutions.
0: Is, and, is this being articulated by them, or this is what you sort of discern?
1: Oh no, this it is it articulated is. over a period of time. Now, critical theory is a very broad, a very broad and 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 long-standing theory, and has given growth to all kinds of of different branches. Critical race theory being the, one of the most um, prominent uh, right now. Uh, And it's very difficult to summarize critical theory because a lot of the theorists disagree with each other and it's been written in long wordy tones over a long period of time. So it's very hard to put your finger on it, but essentially it comes down to what I've just described. And it's, as I said, it's not really theory and it's not really critical in the critical thinking sense. It's simply a platform. And one of the difficulties is that the platform includes a rejection of many of the features of western civilization the ones that grew up from the enlightenment so for example the idea of of evidence evidence now is rejected in favor of lived experience so if somebody says well my experience is this and you say well that's all very well but the statistics say that right uh, you will be you will be dismissed because you're not going along with the theory
0: I, i think some people don't realize how extreme that stuff can get i remember I think it was so donald trump before he was out of office he banned i think that the teaching of critical race theory or workshops related to it in the u.s uh federal government and, and i know a, someone was saying to me oh isn't that awful that he's banning uh he's saying you can't talk about you know anti-racism initiatives and so forth I said, Oh, it's a very different thing i mean i i think it's very important and good that my children in school are taught that look you're going to run into people of all different walks of life and you know some of your fellow classmates uh, you know some of them will have two mommies or two daddies or what have you and you know that's that that's life and you know and everything's great about that. Like there's no issue with all of that, and let's all respect each other and care for each other as a society. But the doing these other workshops is very different than that, isn't it? It's very different about oh, it's not, uh, not than tolerance and, and respecting differences and so forth, which I think we probably should pause every now and then and acknowledge those facts. But this is course, not the same thing.
1: Of course, of course, but what you've just described are opposites opposites. So what, what you've described is non-racism the idea that your race doesn't matter that your sex shouldn't matter that your background shouldn't matter we should just all be human beings and we should embrace each other for what we are for our individuality for our for the for the content of our character and what what you have described there and what you are practicing in the eyes of critical theory is racism that's racism why wow. because it's not anti-racism And anti-racism is the opposite from non-racism. Anti-racism in their Mm. books is when you fail to acknowledge race. If you fail to treat me as a member of a group, then you are being racist. If you fail to compensate Mm. me for the victimhood that I have because of my race, or if you fail to blame me for the privilege that I have because of my group, then you are being racist. And that is the version that's being taught in the public schools.
0: And, you know, it's very interesting because I know we're encouraged to to talk about these issues more and more. And I'm certainly on board with talking about, you know, real problems we have in society and so forth. But, I, I mean, back, you know, when I grew up and how I was raised, I feel like it was, we were told it was impolite to just, bring up people's demographic position, you know, you meet someone, you get along with them, you have a connection, you both like Star Trek or whatever, so you start talking about Star Trek and there a friendship is formed, but this other and you don't just acknowledge, "Hey, I'm going to start talking about your skin color to you right now." I mean, my impression is that's kind of like a rude and socially awkward thing to do. That's how I was raised, but I'm getting the sense that now now no, now the opening conversation with someone is you should be talking about and kind of accentuating those differences. I, I, I,
1: is that what's going on? Well, I mean, Anthony, you and I are old school. I totally agree with you that I mean, this is the whole idea, right? I mean, racism mean, used to mean that you thought race was important. But the way to be racist was to think that race matters. And the way not to be racist was to, to, to treat people as people. And if you had both had Star Trek in common, then you should... <laughs> You should engage with that person because they're a person, because they have an interest like you do, and just and carry on, people. And we're all, we're, we are all the same in the sense that we are all individuals, all unique individuals, and our group identity is and that And that's the opposite of what they want. What they want is group conflict. And so if you're white, your job is to acknowledge that you are privileged and you have power, and and to you your 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 job is to condemn the privilege that you have. And then maybe you can carry on. Is Not there any
0: harm that. in doing that? There are a lot of people who who do say that. They they make those notes and so forth. I would like to acknowledge my privilege and so forth. Um is there a problem with them opting to do that?
1: Yeah, because it's because it's based upon race. There are I mean, I don't I don't even really know what white privilege is supposed to mean, but I know that there are a whole lot of you know, eight people out there who don't have any privilege in any real sense at all. So the the whole premise is. But the activist are, counters
0: that they're talking about systemic issues. They acknowledge that there are you know downtrodden, impoverished uh, Caucasian persons who are on the streets and dealing with addiction and so forth. But broadly, they would say s- systemically, the system is
1: set up in a different. Yeah, way. but what, but the, but the next question is though, what 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 does that mean? Systemically, the system is set up so that I mean. When you asked when you asked them that question, they all they usually have a hard time answering what what that is systemically. So let's talk about the legal system. It would be a it would be a valid complaint, as it was at certain points in history, that the legal system was set up systemically to favor some people and not others. I mean, so you know, if men could own property and not women, if you could have slaves, those were terrible laws, and they were systemically oriented to favoring some and not other people that was true it is not true today our laws don't favor well actually they they do now but but in the opposite way than the way that they mean if you are allowed to have job openings for non-white people but not just for white people then actually the whole thing is flipped and i remember
0: years okay. ago the the liberal government liberal np's used to say i'm talking about the paul martin years which it's hard to believe those are years ago but they are now coming on 20 years they would say we are the party of equality of opportunity not equality yes. of outcome and i guess the ndp would be uh the party of equality of outcome basically meaning the liberals said that they they would strive for everybody's ability to succeed uh you know regardless of their background and whether they started impoverished and so forth and now I, I think things have, have very much shifted in those past 20 years and it's, it's no longer considered acceptable to talk about equality of opportunity, I guess, because we would be told uh, we have since learned that systemically uh, there cannot be equality of opportunity because the system is rigged such that so many people are set up to fail. So one needs to go even further and even beyond equality of, of outcome, I guess, to what now uh, is meant by the phrase equity
1: yeah okay so these are the these to me are the two competing versions of equality in the law and and they're not complementary they're opposite and the two ideas are these either the idea is that the same rules and standards apply to everybody without regard to race or sex or background and so on or different rules should apply to different groups because of who they are and you can't have both those ideas it's got to be one or the other we have been shifting for a long time but we have we seem to have shifted now to the second not the first so the first the first one is equality of opportunity or equality of treatment or equality of application or formal equality those are the words you will you will hear used to describe that idea. And the second idea, that the idea that there should, in fact, be different rules for different groups is equity or substantive equality or equality of outcome. And and that is the idea of equality that is now beginning to, to govern.
0: Let's bring this back to Bill C-10, what we began this conversation with, an, aut- an autocratic piece of legislation, as you write in the pages of the National Post. How does this seemingly small issue about kind of tinkering with the specifics of crtc legislation things they can and can't have overseeing ability over how does bill c10 sort of continue or not continue down this path
1: well it it, like so many other things it gives the the say to the state about what is proper and what is not and in this particular case it's in the hands of the prtc but the CRTC is a is a, a a state body that will have the ability to demand um, social media platforms to comply with its policies, and so, like so many other things today, the government is setting the agenda, and that is taking us away from our basic ideas that that your uh, your beliefs, your ideas, your thoughts, your speech are yours to exercise as you see fit. Um, that that is no longer a given. And the more that we get legislation like C-10 and like the other legislation that the Liberals have promised to bring in, uh, the further away we get from what we think we are.
0: We've had this battle before. A number of years ago, young people, folks in their 20s, teenagers, will not remember this at all. The battle over Section 13, the Canadian and Ontario Human Rights Tribunals, taking people to well, what was called kangaroo courts, Uh, Barbara Meal, Mark Stein, Ezra Levant, when he was associated with other publications, was a part of all of this issue here, where a number of people were accused of violating Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Code. That section said uh, it was against the code, against those laws. If you had said something that was, quote, likely to expose a person or persons to hatred or contempt. Now, there's a lot of challenges, court challenges over that. The debate was very fraught. It was a national conversation for quite a few years. Ultimately, Section 13 was rescinded in 2014. And I I think a lot of it was just based upon this idea of likely to expose persons to contempt and i'm like okay well that's not how i roll and i know there are these losers in canada who want to go in their you know nazi forums or homophobic forums and you know their radical islam groups and so forth and i don't know why they're doing it but this section i don't know this thing is so broad you can you know drive multiple 18 wheelers through it and i think that's why they rescinded it and bruce a lot of people felt like that battle was won but that battle is not only coming back now But one feels like it's coming back with a vengeance
1: yes yes it is it's going to come back and in fact it never really left i mean we still have sections like that in other legislation in this country section 7 of the bc human rights code still has a section very much like that that prohibits statements that either discriminate or or are contemptuous um and, and it was good to repeal section 13 for sure but um that that's not the end of the story, and this is this is going to come back for sure. And uh, we still have these problems in this country. We it, it's a difficult idea now for people to accept that people, other people, who are saying things with which they disagree, things that they might find to be offensive and hurtful and outrageous, should themselves be protected. If you don't believe that someone who is saying something with which you vehemently disagree shouldn't be allowed to say that, assuming they're not advocating violence. If you don't believe they should be allowed to say that, then you don't believe in free speech. As soon as you cross the line of saying, yes, free speech, but not offensive speech, well, that means you don't believe in free speech. That's not what free speech is. Free speech means the right to say things that are hurtful, offensive, outrageous, and wrong. Free speech does not depend upon speaking the truth it's not because something is truthful that you have the right to speak it it's because it's yours it's your speech you can say what you want as long as you don't advocate violence and as long as you don't defame and there you know a couple of other um, exceptions as well but for the most part offensive speech is free speech
0: now there are individuals who say look some of that speech does lead to violence though So what should be done? Now, it should be noted that there are people with uh, the RCMP and other law enforcement agencies across Canada who are tasked with monitoring. You know, there are people who are saying unsavory things online, various white supremacist yahoos or what have you, and there is law enforcement who is tasked with paying attention to that in case they step across the line. And I, I fully support my tax dollars going to paying attention uh, to what radicals are saying and potentially getting up to in my country. Is that the remedy for when people say, look, we think we might have a problem here. We got to do something.
1: Well, let's just be careful, though, about drawing our lines. So if if somebody says something unsavory, that that's, that's no test. Because people say unsavory things all the time. In a, in a free country, in a free country, a, a country that is actually free, you are allowed to hate other people. Why? Because you're free. Now, that's not a good thing. We don't want people to hate other people. We don't want them to say that they do. But if it's a really free country, then they're allowed to do both.
0: But do you have a problem with law enforcement monitoring the jihadist uh, chat groups and the, the neo-Nazi chat groups to go, well, I think this is where these guys start talking about maybe doing an attack kind of thing. Is
1: well, let, sure, let's, We can
0: do that, can't we?
1: let let me just let me just let me just describe what's on the other side of this line the other side of the line is counseling a crime counseling violence saying all right you know what we're going to do we're going to hurt these people we're going to do it in the following way show up to this address with your pitchforks okay that's not on because that's not just feet now now you're talking about actual violence and when you cross that line then of course the police have the duty and the right to investigate that no question but but it's it's the distinguishing between the two things that's important. If you're just online spouting off about this or that, even if it's offensive stuff and nobody agrees with it, if you're if we're in a free country, you're allowed to do that until you cross the line and saying and say, oh, you know what, we're going to do something about this now. That's that's no good.
0: Bruce Party, before we go, let's assume Bill C-10 gets uh, uh, gets royal assent pretty much as is, which seems to be the situation it's headed in. CRTC has the ability to regulate YouTube videos, Twitter videos, and so forth. What happens next for free speech in Canada?
1: Well, the next challenge may be, depending upon what happens in the next few months in terms of an election and so on, if the Liberals uh, retain power, it might be this uh, legislation that they have... Promise to bring in sooner or later that will it it may end up um Anthony uh, recreating section 13 that you mentioned earlier uh maybe in the context of on online online speech Uh, maybe Mm. we will have a federal legislation basically defining what it is you can and cannot say online I I don't know Uh, the no, no drafts have been produced right it remains to be seen but I think this is going to be an ongoing struggle because it seems to be the fact that that the federal government anyway the one we have presently have is determined to um to control what people say in accordance with their prevailing philosophy which in my mind is taking us away from being the liberal democracy that we're supposed to be
0: bruce party a compelling conversation thanks very much for joining us today
1: thanks for having me dancing
0: full comment is a post media podcast i'm anthony fury This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to full comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.